Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Wall of Power Radio R. This is your host, Paul Metza. We're saluting the lifetimes and music of a man the Minneapolis Star Tribune called the Patriarch of the Minnesota Bluegrass Scene, Mr. Alan Jesperson. We're so glad that uh, we were able to get a hold of Alan Jesperson's younger brother, Peter, who was uh, in his own way as they consider Alan Jesperson the patriarch of the Twin Cities bluegrass scene. Peter was, in a way, the patriarch of the Minneapolis punk and new wave scene, running Orfolk Jokopus Records in the 70s and 80s, where he discovered the replacements. Also ran Twin Tone Records, among other things, a real prime mover. We're very excited to have Peter on the line. Peter, first of all, my deep condolences for the loss of your brother Alan. Thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate that. Tell us about the Jesperson household. Obviously, it was a musical household. And where did Alan and uh, young Peter uh, get their musical influences? Well, you know, it wasn't really a musical household in terms of my parents anyway. Um, They, you know, liked music as much as the next person, I think. But... um, it wasn't anything that was a major uh, interest of either of theirs. And so that's what we've always thought was a little bit, um, I don't know, unique, uh, kind of funny about my brother and I being music obsessives. Um, you know, we're not really sure where it came from. I think part of it had to do with the fact that, you know, at our respective ages, my brother was seven years older than I was, born in 47. I was born in 54. Um, and so he was swept up in the late fifties folk boom. And, uh, then that kind of, uh, you know, through the early sixties and the years of, uh, things like Peter Paul and Mary and Bob Dylan, um, you know, following the fifties stuff like the Chad Mitchell trio and the Kingston trio and, uh, the limelighters and that sort of stuff, uh, weavers, etc. um, it was uh, Alan who leaned into bluegrass at that point, uh, just following the acoustic music to a more specific, you know, genre. Um, for me, I guess I just started liking the music I heard on Top 40 radio. Um, I remember things like Elvis Presley and uh, Buddy Holly and... Um, and uh, and the Kingston Trio, as a matter of fact, who had a, as you probably remember, Paul, a big top 40 hit with them. Uh, Tom Dooley. Tom, Tom Dooley in 1958. Yep. So, so you know, those are kind of, the, you know, the springboards that we, you know, uh, leapt from. And, uh, you know, in different kinds of music. I, I like most of what he liked. He didn't like very much of what I liked, to be honest. He didn't <laughs> like the rock music very much. Um but, um, you know, in fact, I remember in, 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 uh, oh, you know, 1968, I guess, or early 69, when the birds made the, uh, no, tor- or the, uh, Dr. Birds and Mr. Hyde album, he had bought it, uh, for himself and, and said, this is way too rock for me and handed it over. And, and I still have that <laughs> copy of that record and, and love it. But, uh, so, you know, we, we, uh, we, um, we didn't, you know, like the same kind of music, but we were both, uh, you know, such music fans, uh, we bonded, I think, on that 
in, in those early years. Was Alan starting to play around the house as a kid? He was. He was. He got his first guitar probably when he was 15 or 16. And uh, he did play around the house all the time. I mean, he just wore it like it was, uh, you know, uh, another appendage of his body. I mean, it was just constant <laughs> walking around, uh, picking at it. Um, and uh, he acquired some nice guitars. I'm not uh, all that well versed in the in the um, specific models, but he was a Martin guitar guy and uh, had a couple of very nice Martins that uh, you know he had right up until the time he passed, um, and uh, was very very happy uh, about those. And I, I remember them sounding, you know, beautiful as as Martin guitars do. Um, so yeah, he played around the house all the time. What uh, when he started the Middle Spunk Creek Boys back in 1968, and that you know they had a geez, I believe it was almost a 40 year run as one of the house bands at Delano's Pizza, not too far up the street from uh, your place at Orfolk Jokopus, which is 26th in Lindale, and of course uh, Delano's was right on Lake Street, just uh, about a block and a half east of uh, Lindale. Did you ever uh, go out and hear your brother's bands play over the years? Oh, all the time. I mean, I remember the first time, uh, the first times that I saw him play, I believe, were at the uh, at the Scholar. Really? Uh, you know, the uh, the scholar on the West Bank, um, uh, you know, it originally had been in Dinky Town and then and, and they moved over to Seven Corners there. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that's where I first saw him and, and went on a regular basis when they had the original trio. Well, he, that was such a stalwart, great band and uh, one of the oldest bands playing uh, that music t till the very, very end. Now, Peter, what did, uh, when you got into your music and the record store and the replacements, and uh, you were also DJ down at the Longhorn, uh, introducing the Twin Cities music scene, not only to great bands that were coming up, like the replacements and Who's Could Do, but you also were bringing a lot of imported records from England with a lot of the punk and the new wave stuff that was coming from there. What did uh, your brother Alan think of that uh, whole journey that his younger brother Peter took off on? Well, I think that um, I, I remember a specific story that he um, that that uh, illustrates it. I, I had originally thought that I, when I got out of high school, that my path was going to be radio. I love to play music for people, and I thought being a DJ was going to be my ticket. And um, so I did go to broadcasting school and took radio electronics and whatnot over at Brown Institute on East Lake Street. And um, sure. I went into radio for about a year and a half and found that it was not really what I wanted to do. It was uh, uh, if I had found a, a, a job at a station that I had complete freedom on, it would have been a different story. But I was working for um, a, a, an uh, AM station that was country and an FM station that was soft rock, I guess you'd call it. And, um, you know, I was had to follow a gold record format and it was quite limiting. And although I enjoyed it and there were some great people that I learned from at that job, it didn't um, it didn't seem like the thing that I wanted to do long term. And I'd been working part time at Orfolk by then uh, while I was in radio school. And then when I got the first radio job and uh, when I expressed my frustration with the radio situation to the owner of Orfolk one 
evening over uh, dinner at his house, he said, well, I've been thinking I'd like you to come full time and manage the store if, if you're if you're interested. And, and um, I jumped at the opportunity. So when I left radio, I remember my father, you know, feeling like I had, um, you know, uh, given up on a goal that I had set for myself. And he was a little disappointed. And I think that over the course of the um, I don't know, first couple of years that I was really ensconced full time at, at Orfolk. Uh, Alan was around the store, would stop in an awful lot. He and other, you know, uh, musicians that he played with would pop in. And, you know, we had a, you, you remember Paul as well as anybody, I think that Orfolk was a pretty, even though we were known for, you know, selling punk rock records and, and, and new wave records and imports from, you know, the UK and other European countries. You know, we had a pretty broad, broad-based uh, collection. We had, you know, blues and jazz and classical music and and all the folk and bluegrass and disco and everything. So, I think Alan appreciated the fact that um, you know we were doing good work at Orfolk. And I remember him telling my dad that he thought I was doing something really. Um, I don't know if he used the word important, but he was thought I was doing something that was um, you know of value, and and uh, that went a long way. And uh, calming my dad down a little bit from, you know, my diverging, the diverging path I took. I have probably 200 records in my collection that still have the Orfolk sticker on it. And, uh, <laughs> it, and, it, and you're exactly right. I, I got, uh, I got a, you know, acoustic fingerstyle. You know, I got my Peter Lang and Leo Kotke records down there. I got my Dexter Gordon records down there. Uh, I got my Bob Dylan records. I mean, I probably have, six or seven genres of music with the Orfolk sticker. And back then, you could get a almost a brand new record for about 50 cents to a dollar. So, Peter, I want to thank you for having such a wide view uh, of music and making it available to customers like myself. Peter, is, uh, we really appreciate your time tonight. How will you remember your older brother, Alan, uh, as you move forward uh, in your life? Well, he was just, you know, I, I uh, you know, I love the guy. I mean, he was, he was a, a great big brother. He was, um, uh, somebody that I admired greatly. He was, he was very smart. Um, I, I loved his handwriting was something I really always loved. He had a very, I don't know, there was a little artistic flair to his handwriting, I think. Um, and, uh, he was a very funny man. He and my dad would riff on each other back and forth constantly. And uh, so there was a lot of laughs going around at our house uh, in those days. And um, and also, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, I have him to thank for being really maybe my first real musical mentor. Um, when he loved something, I knew it was good and I paid attention to it. So even though I was maybe more drawn to the rock and roll music of the 50s, uh, you know, I appreciated, um, you know, uh, that th those those records that he uh, that he listened to, and that helped form my musical taste, and and I think helped me, you know, gain uh, some knowledge and uh, you know some areas of music that I might not have otherwise known about. So I I, I guess I I think of um, I think of him in in many ways, um, you know, great big brother, funny guy, smart guy and music guy. That's fantastic, Peter Jesperson. We're going to end uh, this segment on the Wall of Power Radio Hour with a song from the Middle Spunk Creek Boys. It features Alan on lead vocals. 
called Miner's Silver. Peter, thanks so much for your time, and let's uh, please stay in touch. Great. Thank you so much, Paul, and thank you for uh, inviting me to be on the program. I appreciate it. Thanks to Brett, too. We enjoyed it. Thank you. Take care, sir. Sitting in the light of my switching shack a mile post on the mountain. The storm was pretty bad, the telephone was dead, but it was just 11 hours till the dawn. Then, much to my surprise, the telegraph jumped in the line. As I read the code, I thought, could this be true? The train was on its way, headed up the mountain grade. But it didn't have no engineer or crew The other switch had tried to put it on the mountainside But it kept on coming up the mountain grade I quickly doused the light to try and see into the night Maybe I could spot her headlight in the rain She was pounding down below, I could hear her whistle blow, and I thought, Lord, that's a high and mournful sound. The telegraph again, there's a cave at the mine, and a hundred men are buried beneath the ground. Around the bend and straight at me And her boiler's glowing red as coal in hell Headlights switching wide Searching on the mountainside But the only sound she's making is a wail Then I recognize the train By the number and the name It's the minor silver ghost old 41 Welcome back to the second set on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. We're saluting the life and times of a man named Alan Jesperson, who the Star Tribune called is the patriarch of the Twin Cities bluegrass scene. We've got a fellow named Bruce Jagger who played in Alan's band, the Middle Spunk Creek Boys, for years. Bruce, nice to have you on the line tonight. Tell us how you hooked up with the Middle Spunk Creek Boys and your life and times playing with the great Alan Jesperson. Well, sure. Um, I, a brief history, I, the first band I was in was the Glacial Drifters with a man who had been in the Middle Spunk Creek Boys, C.J. Anderson. And that had like one gig, and thankfully nobody recorded it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and a fellow that was the owner of the guitar store where you used to teach, uh, Paul Moe, and I formed a band called Buckacre back in, oh gosh, 76, I think it was, and I played with them until about 1981 when very amiably we just, uh, everybody decided they wanted to do something different, don't want to play anymore, and a couple of years before that, actually, actually um, Middle Swan Creek Boys needed a mandolin and fiddle player and I was able to do both because Buck Acre wasn't playing much and so I just, it was a smooth transition to the Middle Swan Creek Boys and 
I know it's 1981 because when we did our 1993 album, uh, 25th anniversary, we all had to look all that stuff up. So that's fairly <laughs> accurate. So what was uh, what was your initial impressions of Alan Jesperson, the man? Uh, well, he uh, when I first met him, um, he and Jerry Flynn knew the words to every song I've rewritten. Um, and, of course, anybody that plays bluegrass knows the, the chorus of every song, but uh, he and Jerry both knew everything, on, and they had been folkies back in the folk scare days and moved over to bluegrass. So he was a guy I was sort of in awe of a little bit, except that I had already gotten my mu musician's ego going pretty well, so that didn't last long. But he was a guy that, that had everything figured out, uh, did the booking, did everything, and he was kind of like, none of us had to worry about that stuff. But Alan would get there and would he brought a song, we learned it, maybe he didn't, we didn't have to do that. That was, was kind of different about Middle Swunk. You can bring in any song and people would listen to it and seriously like they wanted to do it so that was kind of like through the whole 50 plus years of the band you never know what you're going to be getting well and uh doing some research on alan jesperson found out like you just said he was he was a great businessman he booked delano's i think not only uh, for your band, the Middle Spunk Creek Boys, but other acts as well. And then he, uh, tell us about, what's it called, the Laughing Waters uh, Bluegrass Festival that he started, I believe, in 1999? Yeah, uh, that's the thing about Alan, and this is uh, praise, not faint praise. Uh, he was a salesman. He worked for Happy's as a delivery man, which meant he had to sell stuff at the stores he visited. Was that potato, so, was Happy's potato chips? Yep. Beautiful. And so that kind of a, you know, a band leader has to be a good salesman because they have to sell the band. Yeah. And by golly, well, you and I have both played forever, and we know that. Um, and so he would uh, never say die as far as, like, getting gigs and stuff. And the Laughing Waters came about because, um, well, they used to be able to play in the parks now and then. Mm -hmm. And, well, you used to, too, as a solo oh, artist. Yeah. And all of a sudden, maybe it was gradual, that they just weren't hiring people anymore. And as, as I recently said something for the Bluegrass Association, we were just like the little rascals. We just finally said, let's put on a show, capital sure. letters. And uh, the park board was willing to let us... Uh, used the band shell at uh, Minnehaha Falls. Um, there were some financial things that happened that was beyond what I knew, but uh, the use of the park was, you know, fairly inexpensive. Um, and what was different, though, is that someone along the line, it was, who knows, uh, probably Alan, decided that we would pay for it by having a program and selling ads. Brilliant. And, the, and the, the local business community just went for it. There, here's, there, there's that salesman again. And the first show, were you at the first one? No, I was not okay. at any of them, but I was aware of it. 
Yeah, well, it was kind of like going back to the uh, some of the part of uh, the festivals in the parks put on by volunteers. It was like uh, a little Woodstock with people that are nice, uh, and it was just <laughs> incredibly successful. The the bands loved it. They got paid like for a whole weekend's worth of work in one hour. Uh, the the audience loved it because they didn't have to pay, and it was good music, really good. Um, the vendors loved it. The park loved it, and the police loved it because. Uh, bluegrass fans are pretty nice. <laughs> so, yeah, right. It was just phenomenally successful. Now, uh, Bruce Jagger, how many uh, gigs a year did the uh, Middle Spunk Creek Boys play? And secondly, what are what will be your memories that will uh, about your association with Alan Jesperson and how those will uh, stay with you over the years? Well, uh, the second question is the easiest. Uh, I'll remember them forever. Um, and it's not like we always agreed on everything, but we always agreed on what the band was going to do and what it should do. And uh, occasionally we didn't like a song the other one person brought, but you know what? We did them. Yeah. And after a while you learned uh, that's the way it should be. Um, so I'll remember that, his incredible energy to run a band Sell you know sell the band to people, uh, and then the Laughing Waters get the you know it's just like I'll, I'll remember the fact that he was like uh, five six years older than me, and I was about forty years older than him in energy. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great conversation. We're gonna uh, go out with this segment with a, a song performed by the Middle Spunk Creek Boys, uh, featuring my guest Bruce Jager. The song June Apple, are you playing uh, mandolin on this, Bruce? Yes, uh, that was a song with, a, uh, you know the names, there are a lot of big stars as far as I'm concerned. Um, Jim Chordoff, uh, I think Barry St. Main. Uh, the first mandolin break is Mark Breyer. Wow. And the first fiddle break is Peter Ostrisko. Wow. And the uh, second mandolin break is me with Alan Jesperson playing a really nice guitar break in the middle. And then I believe that uh, Rudy Darling and Peter Rosrosco ended up with twin fiddle. I mean, th these are just like you know icons. <laughs> yes. Well, that's that. These are incredible stories, Bruce Jagger. Thanks so much for taking time in the Wall of Power Radio Hour to speak with us tonight. And I look forward to seeing bumping into you soon. It's been too long. It has. Well, we know how to get hold of each other now, and then the. We'll we'll get together. We may not recognize each other, you know, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we we'll, we both look really good on radio. Exactly. Th <laughs> thanks, Bruce. You have a great evening.
Welcome to the last set uh, on the Wall of Power Radio Hour tonight. This is your host, Paul Metza. We're saluting the lifetimes and music of a man the Minneapolis Star Tribune called the Patriarch of the Minnesota Bluegrass Scene, Mr. Alan Jesperson. And we have a man that knows a little bit about bluegrass with us tonight. We're happy to have him. Phil Nussbaum has had a bluegrass radio show, Bluegrass Saturday Morning. It runs 7 to 12, uh, 7 to noon weekly on Jazz 88, KBEM-FM. He also does Twin Cities Weekend and Twin Cities This Week. Both those shows promote the work of local artists through edited interviews and song clips. It was, uh, it's been my go-to show for years when I love a little bluegrass on Saturday morning. And we're happy to have Phil Nussbaum. Phil, how are you tonight? I am well, and thanks for including me. Well, there's, uh, you, you are one of the uh, best bluegrass minds in town. And uh, I'm sure we'll have some great things to say about the late, great Alan Jesperson. Tell us a little bit about your history and how you ended up in Minneapolis, Phil. I wound up in Minneapolis. I had a radio job uh, in Iowa uh, for nine years. Um, I was I was a folk music disc jockey, and I did a lot of field recording as part of that. And, you know, I went all over eastern Iowa recording everything from bluegrass, polka bands, singer-songwriter, um, old-time um, Scandinavian music. You know, all, all that stuff is, well, all over the place, both in... Um, Minnesota and Iowa, uh, but I kind of wanted to do something uh, with my folklore degree, and uh, there was an opening at the State Arts Board for someone to um, um, be part of the folk arts program and give grants, but also do research, and I applied, and I got the job, and so I did that for, I think it was 17 years, and then, um, but uh, so that started in 86. Uh, but in 93, Carl Almo, who was the host of Bluegrass Saturday Morning on uh, 88.5, uh, he started that as a high school project. And he was moving on uh, to art school in uh, DeKalb, Illinois, and was looking for someone to take his place. And word got around uh, and that I had radio experience. So... Um, uh, finally, I, in, I think it was October 93, I started, I took over from Carl. And um, that's, uh, and then when the arts job ended in, I think it was 2003, I uh, kept on doing the Bluegrass show and kind of built off that and did some other things for KBEM. So maybe that's more than you bargained for, but that's what caused me to, Moved to Minneapolis, St. Paul, and actually I've lived here longer than uh, any other place I've lived. And you're also, it's, uh, it's the perfect gig for you, uh, uh, turning people on to great bluegrass music. You're also a banjo player yourself. Yeah. And, and uh, that's how I met Al. Uh, I was... Great. Um, th there was a time... Uh, when I was asked to join a band that later became known as Urban Renewal Bluegrass and uh, by Dale and Prue Palachek. And uh, the fourth member was my wife, Karen Van Norman, who started playing the bass. And uh, she still plays music, but uh, she went back to uh, 
the trombone, which she played in high school. But anyway, uh, we were at something called um, the, the Bluegrass Swap Meet. It later became the Winter Bluegrass Weekend. But anyway, but we were sitting at a table and running through some songs, and Al heard us. And so he came over, and Al was uh, the booking agent for Delano's Pizza, which, uh, who'd have thunk it, but that was a center of bluegrass in the Twin Cities area. Every Friday and Saturday night, and if it wasn't, it was almost always bluegrass. Sometimes it would be some other acoustic uh, form that was, that was mixed in. Well, it was four hours, you know, bands played four hours. Uh, when we started, uh, you'll remember this, Paul, it was nine to one. All, all shows, you always played nine to one. Uh, now it's getting to be more like eight to midnight, which right. I like better. <laughs> I like eight so, to like ten, uh, you know, but that's just my, as you get older, you'd rather play better music in a less amount of time because you gotta you got to drive home and get to bed at some point, get your beauty yeah. sleep. Yeah. Well, we were playing in this, so uh, I can't remember what hotel it was that this this, this uh, concert, uh, bluegrass event, took place in. Uh, we said, uh, hey, uh, you know, he asked, are you guys a band? What, you know, and he booked us to play in Delano's. And of course, we, you know, we thought this was, um, you know, as, as far as you could go. Well, we didn't take that, but it was, you know, it was great for us. And uh, so we were one of the many groups that was booked by Alan Jesperson over his tenure as the uh, booker for Delano's Pizza. And, of course, that was right up his alley because he knew all the players in town. Many of them passed through the group that he played with, the Middle Spunk Creek Boys. And well, you know, so Phil, if I could just jump in here. When I was doing some research on uh, Alan Jesperson, who passed away at the end of December uh, 2021, he had Peter Ostrusko, Jim Tordoff. He had a really amazing lineup of, of people that went on to become nationally acclaimed musicians play at some point in the middle Spunk Creek Boys. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Uh, and um, always an interesting group, uh, in, in my opinion. Uh, they played some of the old bluegrass, although I think they favored uh, more of the folky kinds of things. But um, I, I shouldn't. Um, the great thing about the Spunk Boys was, to me, that the care they took in uh, preparing a song for an audience. Uh, just give me a second here. I'm going to take a pull of water. Yeah. All right. Um, to me, the act of arranging is what you do to prepare a song for an audience. So mm -hmm. it was very seldom do a kickoff, sing, uh, um, harmonies come in on the chorus, break, and that cut and dry. Uh, there was always some little arranging detail that they would put in their songs, and I, I value that. I can tell, you know, when, when you hear that, you, you think, oh, these guys care. Uh, these guys go to rehearsal and then ideas come out and they work them out. And then when you go, when the audience members go to see a show, they see a good show. So that was the Spunk Boys. And this, they evolved over time. There were the, uh, 
Mark Kreitzer years. And Alan used to quip from the stage that the Middle Spunk Creek Boys are now the backing band for Mark Kreitzer. <laughs> and in two, they did a lot of Mark's originals. And by the way, Mark writes good original songs. So that's what I particularly remember about the Middle Spunk Creek Boys. And I would imagine if they continue to play uh, in some new uh, configuration, uh, that they would continue uh, that um, that interest in creating interesting versions of songs that you know grab your ear. That's to me, that's really what it's about. Well, if uh, the Rolling Stones can can play after the death of Charlie Watts, let's hope the Middle Spunk Creek Boys uh, keeps the vision of Alan Jefferson intact uh, with their next iteration. What can you tell us about Alan Jesperson, the man? Alan was real. Uh, you know, uh, it was no, uh, you know, Alan was not Minnesota nice. Uh, and, but that doesn't mean he was the opposite. You know, Alan was uh, Minnesota. Um, I'll uh, just, you know, he was straightforward, you know? Right. Uh, and so, uh, he wasn't afraid uh, to offer his opinion on something, although I would not say that he was overly opinionated. You know, so when you right. were talking to Alan, you were really talking to Alan, and that was it. And he made no he made uh, no apology for the fact that he loved playing bluegrass. Mm -hmm. You know, and it was a real highlight. Uh, his birthday was about Memorial Day, so he would have a, a jam at the, right around in the parking lot or the area behind that store that he had where he rehabbed and sold uh, old-time radios. You know the radios, that are, the radios that are a piece of furniture? The old Zenith radios. I have one. Yeah. Uh, well... Uh, you know, if you like those, you would have loved the store if you ever went into it, because it was, you know, it was nothing but. So anyway, he would, uh, there would be a jam inside. If it was a really hot day, there would be a, and it can be a Memorial Day, um, then the jam would be inside. Otherwise, it would be outside, and, you know, people would, you know, people would bring potluck stuff. He'd have the grill going, and little groups would form, and, you know, people would play and have a, a great time. So that's, uh, you know, one of his. And, and another thing, and this shows the community orientation. He wanted to have uh, a festival. And, he, you know, the Bluegrass Association, the story goes that the Bluegrass Association wasn't going to fund. So he, he got it funded. He went to some of the businesses that he knew of. And, you know, almost like door-to-door, -door, or maybe it was door-to-door, -door, asking for donations. And had enough to pay the bands. And, you know, he would have a, a half a dozen bands at the um, at Minnehaha Falls, um, the Laughing Waters Bluegrass Festival every Labor Day. And it's always an interesting program. Every band plays an hour, so you know you're getting the group's best stuff. And there are some really memorable occasions and to me i don't know how he pulled this off uh but he had 
to my ear, one of the greatest bluegrass groups of all time, the Nashville Bluegrass Band, come and deliver a show. And uh, but Alan, but Alan's booking was outdone by the weather that day. Just when it's time for the National Bluegrass Band to perform, here comes the rain. And sure. I mean, the way, of course, you know, the wind blowing left to right, and you're thinking, oh, I don't want fall to begin on September 3rd. No, it's too early for fall to be. Anyway, so you're getting all these thoughts, and um, many people, you know, grab their lawn chairs, headed for their cars. Uh, Doug, the sound guy, uh, took down his speakers basically put the sound away. And many of us just sort of huddled on the stage, you know, for shelter. Okay, mm-hmm. so the rain passes through, and uh, and there's, um, and the band is still on the stage. And so are we. And it, it's too wet, to, you know, to, to go out into the, the audience and to sit down or whatever. So the band plays its set acoustically, they play great as ever, and we're all on the stage with them, and who'd have thunk it, you know? So, I mean, um, uh, Alan pulled a great one off um, when he, he got the Nashville Bluegrass Band to come. You know, I thought I'd never see him again, because I don't think they're out there performing that much. So I don't know how he pulled that off. But I think um, it, one of the greatest groups of all time, and they really kind of dug the circumstances, you know? Oh, we're going to play well, acoustic. All right. Hey, here we go. All right. Sure. Why not? Let's do our set now. Rain stop. Sure. Everybody yeah. has fun. It reminds me of the great stories when Bill Monroe, back in the day, would pull into town, put up his own tent, uh, take some member of his band and his crew, and uh, play a ball, a baseball game with the locals, and then uh, would play probably, you know, a lot, straight acoustic. So it's part of the tradition. And we're speaking with uh, Phil Nussbaum. He's got a great Bluegrass Saturday morning show, 7 to 12 noon, weekly on Jazz 88 uh, FM. Tell us, uh, the last question of the night here, Mr. Nussbaum, tell us what you believe will be Alan Jesperson's uh, legacy on the Minnesota bluegrass scene. Well, it's the love of the music and the commitment. You know, you could not, I mean, he was obviously committed. He, I, I, I'm not really sure how many years of existence the middle of Spunk Creek Boys. It could be 50. (laughs) Spunk Boys played a long time. And, you know, always, um, you know, always with a good commitment to um, doing something with them, you know, honoring the tradition, but putting in your own twist. And it's not properly understood that putting in your own twist is part of the tradition. You know, that's, that's what all the, the, um, the first generation of bluegrass players that we still listen to did they, they you know they did they did it their way and so did the Middle Spoon Creek boys so it's it's the commission uh, the commitment and it's also you know the keeping it real you know uh, it's uh, I think people will remember that about Alan that you know it was uh, just when you talk to Alan you were really talking to Alan. Phil Nussbaum, that is just the excellent way to end this tribute to Alan Jesperson, the patriarch of the Twin Cities and Minnesota bluegrass scene at large. Listen to Phil every week on KBM in the morning to hear some great bluegrass. This was just really wonderful, Phil. Thanks so much for taking time out to speak with us. 
Uh, you bet. Uh, a great pleasure, and thank, thanks again for including me. And we're going to end this tribute to the great Alan Jesperson with a song that Bruce Jagger from the Mill Spunk Creek Boys said was Alan's favorite song called Red Dancing Shoes. Exactly what we're gonna do. Put on your dress, it'll make you look fine. Get a coat, rib, tie your pair behind. We're going dancing, it's gonna make us feel real good. Oh, Papa, won't you make her a brand new pair of red dancing shoes? Make them with love. Soft, make them light, you can make them just right Then she will dance with me all night Papa, won't you make her a brand new pair of shoes? Well, I grabbed that girl and I held her tight and Made me feel everything was right I could feel her heart, it was beating next to mine Oh, little kiss, and I was feeling fine Those pretty blue eyes, oh, how they did shine I could hardly wait till they played the next song or two Oh, Papa, won't you make her a brand new pair of red dancing shoes? Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. The show was produced by Paul Metzen, engineered by the great Brett Johnson. We'd like to thank our guests in this tribute to Alan Jesperson, younger brother Peter Jesperson, longtime bandmate Bruce Jagger, and bluegrass expert Phil Nussbaum. My book, Alphabet Jazz, Poetry, Prose, Stories, and Songs with a Companion CD, is coming out hopefully by the end of April, by May Day for, uh, for sure. Follow me on paulmetza.com to check that out. And like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy.